So thank you for joining us. Um, Jay is still passing out some packets here, but um, going to be presenting on construction contracts and specifically gearing it a little bit towards what you're dealing with right now. It's kind of an emergency situation of construction contracts. So should be really good. If you have any questions, please let us know. We have a little bit smaller group today. So this is the perfect time. I, if you have a specific issue going on, you know, ask Jay about it. Let's try to address it. Um, without further ado, Jay Levine from Levine Law Group. Oh, and I did want to mention one more thing. Uh, thank you to Ryan and KNEG for providing a, a surplus of drinks. I was not so good in communicating how much we needed. So if you're really thirsty, today's the day to be here. And um, yeah, and this is a good time to talk to Ryan about painting because no one else is talking about painting right now. They're just dealing with roofing. So uh, talk to Ryan Anchor Paint. Good afternoon, or just about made the afternoon. We're gonna be talking about the elements of construction contract, and although the focus today will be where there is a storm such as Irma and there's damage to be um, uh, corrected, but this could apply to any time you sign a contract, whether it be for roofing, painting, paving, whatever it may be, this will help. But I'm gonna to try to gear this toward um, the event that just passed. Uh, one thing I want to stress uh, right from the start, and uh, is anybody at the SCCA meeting that was held uh, last, about 10 days ago? Okay. Well, you heard Sonia in her opening remarks, as well as myself and Eric Wynott, stress the fact, do not sign an assignment of benefits contract. Now, they take different forms. Sometimes they're somewhat disguised. What an assignment of benefits contract is, is where the contractor says, um, I'll do the work, insurance company will pay me, and you're gonna assign away your rights to insurance money over to the company. And if they can't get enough money from the company, then they would hire their own lawyer and sue the insurance company but you're not a party. It's sort of for your benefit, but really not. You're not part of the litigation. And I had to address one of these where it was before my time, so I could not be persuasive to have such a contract not be signed, and the insurance company wasn't paying enough, so the case went uh, into litigation. It finally settled after two years. No roof work was done for two years, because they were waiting for the lawsuit, and when I, as the association counsel, try to put some of my influence in the matter, I was yelled at. Because I'm not, I'm the association's attorney, I have no standing or right to control the litigation once you've passed away those rights. And sometimes they'll not be real clear, it's kind of beat around the bush. But whenever you hear them saying, insurance will pay, that's the red light and have your counsel uh, look at it to, to determine if it is such a contract. Typically, they're very short. They could be as short as a page. That's the one I had to deal with. Now I'm fighting over the language of the contract now that the work's gonna be done because insurance money is being made available. So it's a fight all down the line. Really avoid those contracts. They sound really enticing. They sound like you know, this is like the best thing since Wonder Bread. I'm gonna get you all this repair done, 
I'm even going to cover your deductible. Please, you've got to stay away totally from contracts like that. Um, it's possible for those who are members of SCCA, if you would let Roger know if these companies are doing this. I think Roger is correct, you're taking kind of a database of these, of the uh, fly-by-nights that try to take advantage. So if you have any of those experiences, um, let Roger know the name of the company. I think he might be interested. Okay, great. Now what I like to do in construction contracts is use the AIA family of contracts. Um, we have um, a, a contractor who's on the panel, and if you want to maybe speak to the kind of contracts you typically would ask associations to sign, do you use the AIA, do you use something different? What's your experience? Well, we don't normally use the AIA, but I, you know, it's, every association is different, but um, uh, we've done a lot of AIA contracts, but that's usually initiated by the, uh, the you know, the attorney of the association. Um, I mean, we have a good contract. Uh, we try to spell everything out clearly, right. um, but, but we don't uh, for our company. Uh, the reason why I like it is, first of all, and uh, the one I favor the most is the A107. And that was the latest edition is 2007. There is an A104 that just came out this year that I'm just learning um, how that is. It's a little bit different. They're, they're lengthy, but a, and a lot of it doesn't apply. Fine. It's not doesn't apply. But it covers most issues that are going to come up. But the AIA on its own is not a good contract for certain for the association because the AIA contracts are a collaboration, national collaboration of property owners, contractors, and architects. That's the three people who got together to come up with a very, what I call, even-steven agreement, where it um, doesn't slant it to one side versus the other. And then there's something called supplementary conditions, which is another way to say addendum. And that's where I get involved, and I create an addendum that slants stuff over to the association and then brings in certain Florida law provisions since the AIA contracts are a national product, so there's no state provisions in any of them. That's part of where the supplementary conditions come into play. Um, very few contractors will balk at using one. I just had a very large company, uh, anyone here of Carousel? I don't know how, if they're up prevailing this far north. Um, they refused. They had their own. Now, their own was very similar to AIA, but then I had to create a massive addendum because I was trying to fit in with their product, which suited them. So co contracts are generally more favorable to the contractor, and if I were a contractor, I would make it that way too. That's where your legal counsel comes into play, and don't be um, penny-wise, dollar-foolish, I probably have it reversed, where you don't want to spend money to protect you, but if you have a very large contract and there's a problem and, and you're not protected, you're going to be on the negative end if you ever have to litigate the case. Now, in condos, you have what's known as competitive bidding. And com competitive bidding does not mean three or more, it means two or more where there's a competition. Two or more is competitive bidding. And the statute uh, site is 718.3026. 
So basically, you have to attempt to get at least two bids. Sometimes after a, a storm like Irma, where in this case you had um, assets stretched to Texas, so you had um, very few contractors, and so you couldn't get a second bid. And I re recommended associations try their best. I had an association after the 04 storms in Vero. We couldn't get a second bidder, so we advertised in the newspaper, and no one came forward. So we used the one that we had, and an owner objected, and we knew he would. And I said, fine, go to the state if you want to, but we did what we could, and he kind of dropped the issue. So now, when you're in the emergency powers area, and you have emergency powers both in 718 and 720, while the, um, since you have a state of emergency issued by the governor, I think that state's still in effect, if I'm correct, or has it been lifted? Anyone know if it's been lifted? Or is, no, still in place. Still in place, great. Um, while it's in place, emergency powers apply. Now the question is, can you forego competitive bidding during the emergency power process? To protect the property, dry in the roof, whatever you have to do to protect, in my opinion, competitive bidding does not apply. Statute doesn't say so, but that's my opinion, it does not apply. However, and I have this issue where they like that contractor so much, did such a great job, they want him now, his company, to do the roof replacement. We're talking about $2 million. And so, well, technically that's probably a competitive bidding requirement because the protecting the site part of the work is done. They should go out, even if it's a dummy bid that you're, not, you're gonna ignore and you don't have to take the lowest bid, you can take the bid you want. You can take the highest bid if you choose. So they understood and they said, I hear you. When I hear you means they're not gonna listen. And my clients don't always listen. And sometimes they're okay and sometimes they're not. Now the competitive bidding has a threshold, I need to tell you that. Um, it's 5% in condos of your budget and 10% in HOAs. So if you're under the threshold, you don't have to competitively bid. But if you're over those thresholds, then you do, if it's not emergency type work during the state of an emergency that exists in place. Let's go now into the elements of a construction contract and uh, there's an outline um, in your materials. Um, there's also some articles of interest that I'd like to uh, have you look at for future reading. We will not be covering them today, although there is a, um, a, a letter or a memo that we did in the packet entitled Insurance and Casual Repair Consideration Amending Documents. You want to look at that. Also, the emergency powers of condos are listed here. And then it also mentions the insurance dilemma. I'm gonna talk about that just for a minute. The insurance dilemma point is where, and it's kind of not me alone, but me as minority battling the insurance industry from the appraisers all the way to the insurance agents, although this article I've sent everywhere and I'm starting to get feedback on it and agents are seeming to agree more than they were in the beginning that when the association is faced with all these owners add-ons 
like balcony enclosures, and sometimes they could be sizable in number and cost that the association's obligated to insure for that. The industry has take, taken the position that the association does not, but they're not reading the law the way it's worded. They're reading the law the way the drafter meant it, and I drafted a fair amount of this that year, but that part, they wouldn't listen. So it talks about an insuring obligation at the association level, you insure original construction, like replacements. That's always been the law. But then they added any alterations and improvements pursuant to, and it throws you to the material alteration section of 718. What that says is there shall be no alteration or improvements except as allowed by the documents. And that does not just mean association made alterations. Its owner made alterations as well. And there's plenty of case law to say that applies to owners as well as associations. So the problem with the industry interpretation, I'd like to know what the companies are interpreting this, not just the agents, um, is that you're gonna have less insurance than the full insurable value, if I'm correct in the way I'm reading the statute. And that means you may have underinsurance. So if a claim is not paid in full because you didn't insure for uh, enough of the uh, value, then you may end up getting less proceeds and the owners are gonna pay more in assessments. Also, you have what's called coinsurance. Coinsurance penalty is where the policy sets an amount, it's been 100% more and more these days, is that correct? No, 80, 90, 100? Is 100%. Okay, um, so if you end up having um, less than the insurable value insured, which basically means the insurance company's not making quite the premium that they could have made, that shortfall comes off the top of your claim. That's your penalty. So if you're 10% less than what the insurance contract requires and you have a million dollar claim, you get 900 and then they take your deductible off of that, okay? and then now face the music of the owners who are here and they have to pay more money in assessments. So, you know, pass the, this article off to your agents. I'm happy to have a dialogue with any insurance agent that wants to battle me or just have a conversation. I'm, I'm hoping that you, um, I invite that, share this article with them as you can. So now back to the elements of the contract. You need to have a good scope of work. The contractor may be the one that provides a scope of work, but that may be very bare bones. It may not, the scope of work is the how to do the work, the specifications, any drawings. That's where you want to work with, if you have a design type professional, an engineer, architect, roofing consultant, whatever uh, professional you use that's going to administer the job, approve draws, close out the project, uh, in some contracts where there's quantities like rotted wood, um, once you take the roof off after the storm, then you're going to have um, someone overseeing to make sure they're not over quantifying you. Because if the replacement is way over than what you need, it's like a construct, uh, concrete restoration, they can, they can take that jackhammer and, and chip all day, but they're chipping too much. You're paying by the lineal foot 
whatever um, threshold um, you're paying on. So that's where you design professional in larger jobs. I would say probably 100,000 and up. I would recommend you engage one of these. Um, the AA contract is built around there being a design person functioning in that capacity. So that, and part of what this design professional will do, let's call it an engineer to make it easy, will help with the specs. We'll take the specs coming from the contractor and create greater detail. Because if the detail isn't there, they don't have to do it. Very important that the scope of work is detailed and clear. Now, lawyers are not going to play around with scope of work. I don't profess to be an engineer or an architect. I wouldn't think of altering a spec. I may cut and paste specs into an exhibit, but I don't change it. That's not my function. It's not the function of an attorney. You have experts that do that kind of work. Um, the next important thing to realize is you need to have a contract amount. Now, can you say whatever the insurance company pays, but there's no assignment of benefits? I would say that's probably good enough. Uh, it hasn't been tested whether if you really don't have a price, because that's not a price. It's whatever someone else is going to pay. And if you don't have the key elements of a contract in place, it becomes what's called illusory. Illusory means it really isn't a contract. So I think it, that would probably suffice without an assignment of benefits because you don't want to do that. Um, you, I'd like to also put in my addendum very tight ability of the contractor to get more money for things that were not anticipated or to get more performance time because of things beyond the contractor's control. And, and they like to use those words. We can add to the price if things happen beyond our control, whatever that means. Who's going to make that judgment call? The contractor, obviously, is very subjective. Um, so, and, or I need more time to perform. And meanwhile, you set the time frame to have it where the, before the people return from the north. So now you've got um, extended construction into the season and your owners are not going to like it. So very important to tight, have a tight leash on increases in sum and increases in performance time. And what are the three performance times? When you start, it's known as commencement. Um, commencement is usually measured from permit issuance. Sometimes it's uh, delivery of materials. If it's a material heavy job, like maybe windows that are being replaced, um, or significant other materials. Um, substantial completion is the next event that basically is everything with a punch list that's left to be done. It's fit for use, but there's little odds and ends need to be done. And then you have finally final completion, and that's when the rest of the money that's owed to the contractor gets paid and you do the project closeout that's required so the permits close out. You never want an open permit because when people go to buy and sell, they're going to do a, um, a search of the county and municipality. If they see open permits, you're going to have to close that permit or there's no closing. And I've seen a lot of times where the permit doesn't get closed out for some reason, and that could be an issue. 
Um, notice the commencement. Um, have your lawyer prepare it. Let me give you a little horror story in a condo where the contractor prepared the notice, trying to do the right job. I'm not saying it was, it was intentionally bad, but it described, it was work, it was a condo where the work was in the common element areas or garages that were out separate from the units. And it was garage construction work. And the notice of commencement mentioned all the lots, all the units that were part of the legal description. So when the contractor filed a claim of lien, the claim of lien went against every unit, not the common elements. That's not good for closings, not good for refinances. So what we had to do there is bond off the lien. It was not so high that we couldn't, they couldn't afford it. And then I did a, what's called a notice of contest of lien, which shortened that contractor's right to bring a lawsuit to foreclose to 60 days from a year. And I threatened this guy with slander of title and all sorts of things. And the fact is, he didn't finish the job, but leaned for the last payment. You don't get a payment when you're not finished. It, it was probably close to a fraudulent lien, and I was going to defend on that basis if they foreclosed. We haven't heard a word. 60 days is gone. We applied to the clerk for the return of the uh, bond money. They got their money. They didn't have to pay the contractor for work that wasn't completed, but it could have gone down less pretty. It worked out well. Uh, I had once where someone just drove by a project, saw some work going on, and filed a lien. He wasn't even on the job. And we had to bond that one off. This is a long time ago, and that was a significant amount of money. And, of and I did the kind, same kind of threat, and they never bothered us again, and we eventually got our cash bond money back. So it's important to have the notice of commencement properly describe the property because that's where the lien description will match. It'll match that, very important. Um, sometimes if you wanna make sure a contractor doesn't stall and potentially not do punch lists, you can try what's called a liquidated damage clause. Do you wanna speak about your feeling of those? Yeah, I mean, usually when you bring up like liquidated damages, which is basically you give a timeline for your contractor to perform or to complete the contract, um, usually with an, uh, an allotment of weather or other impacts that uh, can slow down the project. Um, but, you know, I think any really good contractor is okay with the liquidated damages um, clauses. Um, if they're an established good company. It is a way to kind of weed out some of uh, the fly-by-night contractors. It'll scare them off and that's probably a good thing um, because they may not be financially stable enough. They, there's a lot of reasons why they, they might choose not to um, sign a contract like that. Um, but the one thing you just have to keep in mind and you have to weigh out uh, based on the value of the contract or how uh, important it is for you to get the contract completed uh, in a reasonable amount of time um, is it's going to drive the cost. I mean, if you put it's a hundred dollars a day or three hundred dollars a day, whatever value you you establish uh, for every day that they don't complete the contract. I mean, any contractor is going to say, well, just to protect myself, let me 
you know, put another 10 days in there just for <coughs> some unforeseen things or, you know, labor issues. There's, uh, and uh, just, you know, so it's going to drive the cost up, but you just have to say, you know, that may be uh, a insurance uh, that you want to take out against something like that. You don't want to be in a situation, especially if it's concrete restoration or it's something that's very invasive into the lives of of your, you know, your owners, um, you know, you don't want something like that dragging on and on and on. Uh, painting is not as invasive, you know, that's what I do, but we're talking in general. Um, so you just have to evaluate it. I think it's a really good tool, actually. I mean, um, you know, it protects, protects you. Yeah, I generally have opposition when I recommend one. And when I speak to the client, I don't tell them what to do. If a lawyer tells a client what to do, you got the wrong lawyer. We could, we're advisors, but the directors get the big bucks to make the decision, and we can just guide. Um, but I will suggest you might want to consider liquidated damages. Um, the contractor, if willing, will may come back and say, fine, but I get a bonus if I finish early. In the same amount that you're going to punish me for being late, give me a bonus for being early. And if it's a contract you need to get done sooner than later, it may not be bad. But the difficulty I think you're going to have is because you have a stretched contractor system now because of Irma and on the heels uh, of the storm in Texas, um, you may have a contractor that might run a thin crew or toward the end another lucrative job comes up and then they're not there anymore. And now the project doesn't get finished. So I think now might be a critical time where you insist on, I like to do $500 a day, frankly. And yes, as you mentioned, you may, they may build in a performance completion time frame, which is a bit longer, or, and or ask for a uh, completion bonus. That's the opposite of the penalty. Uh, when you make your final payment, here's something that is always, I wouldn't say always, but Half the time overlooked. Let's assume you have a manufacturer's warranty in the mix. Your roof got damaged in Irma, you need to have a replacement, and you're gonna have a roofing manufacturer's warranty in addition to the warranty of the contractor. What happens a lot of times is the contractor gets paid, but the warranty never gets issued. It's one of those closeouts that are missed. Uh, you want to speak about project closeout, possibly, either of you? Um, the, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's just common sense. I mean, you need all of your releases of liens from your contract. You know, a lot of times, exactly, these details get missed. Um, even, uh, you know, throughout the, the um, process, I think every time, every time you issue a payment, you should be getting a partial uh, waiver lien, and that's something that is rarely requested. And if it's not requested, your contractor's not going to go out of his way to do it. But um, uh, but you need to be getting those partials along the way, and then certainly by the time you close out, you need to get um, all your final uh, releases of lien. And to be more specific, you want um, I'm trying to think of the terminology, but it's. Uh, Mm, there's there's several different kinds of final waivers and maybe you can pick up where I where I, I left 
I leave off, but you need to get that final final. And there's language in some of those finals that are um, conditional upon the contractor getting paid. And what you want is a final unconditional right. waiver. So you need to get that. You need to get the, the warranty from the contractor themselves because you expect your contractor to stand behind it regardless of what the manufacturer does. And that's also something that, that is rarely requested. Um, uh, and then the manufacturer warranty as well. But I find at least with uh, a painting that, you know, the manufacturer uh, sometimes does not step up to the plate in times of warranty situations. They're very good at finding, oh, this is not included because of that, you know, because there's, there's exceptions to protect them. And sometimes you can drive a bus through the loopholes, you know, but, uh, but, but so, you know, it, it, you feel like if you've got both, then at least you, you have an answer. You need a solution. I've always said when you have a warranty, you, you need a solution. You don't need an answer. You don't need a, a reason. You just need, you need it taken care of. On the warranty, by the way, I don't depend on the issuance of a contractor warranty. I build a warranty in the contract. You don't want to chase, what if you don't get it? Then where are you? So I build that warranty of the contractor right in the contract itself. So it's not an agreement to provide a warranty. It's a warranty being provided through the contract itself. It saves asking for a step. And I like to actually have the warranty of the contract, the manufacturer attached, a specimen, because you want to match it up with what you get. I had an association where the specimen warranty in the contract was one thing, but then when they finally got it, it had all these extra things and all these um, care and prevention and all things that owners will never ever do because they can't. And therefore, I mean, they just threw it at it and the association was trying to sort out, well, why is the warranty mentioned by the contractor from the manufacturer not matching what the manufacturer actually delivered? And there's a lot of times I mentioned that getting the warranty from the um, uh, manufacturers overlooked. And then when, if the contractor goes out of business or isn't stepping up to the plate or says that's a material failure, not a workmanship, and you go to the contract, the man manufacturer and say, we're, gonna, we're going on our warranty. He says, what warranty? We don't have a warranty for you. Well, we were supposed to. Well, hey, that's not our fault. You didn't make sure it was done. So as a condition to final payment, Yes, have the warranty without qualification. Sometimes warranties say, until we get paid, there's no warranty, or until your contractors pay, there's no warranty. No, 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 no. Uh, the more conditions, the worse protection for you. Now, there's gonna be some association performance obligations in the contract, like you're going to potentially provide utilities. They're gonna need a, a water electric source. Um, they, you have to discuss how are they going to have their sanitary uh, needs uh, fulfilled? Are they going to have the portalettes? And you'll need a staging area, which you set aside for that and vehicles. Are they going to be able to use association clubhouse bathroom facilities? You want to know if that's going to be the way it's done. That'll be in the contract. Um, will there be a dumpster? And again, you control the location, so you're going to cordon off certain areas. We call it the staging area for materials and vehicles. Now, the contractor is going to have some performance obligations. And I like to, and I, I get opposition, but I like to say that 
you're kind of stuck with the site conditions. You don't, don't come later on and say, well, I didn't know that was there. I didn't plan for that, so that's why I want more money or more time. So I like them to accept the field conditions, as it's called. A lot of contractors will not pay attention to that. Others will balk, and you negotiate. Um, I've, I've been lucky. I probably negotiated um, hundreds, a couple of hundred maybe, and I've never had one not work. Sometimes it took several drafts because the parties really want to do business together. Um, but sometimes you put something in a contract, or I would, kind of knowing that the uh, contractor may object, knowing that we'll give in, we'll give you that, but we want that. It's called negotiation. Sometimes you throw a few things in there and they don't uh, crit critique it, then you get something more than you really could have gotten. But it's called, um, throwing chips in and then trading for something you really want. Uh, sometimes you want to make sure that uh, there is a foreman or superintendent type person that's going to be there on site and ideally uh, fluent in English because that doesn't always happen. And you want to make sure you can communicate effectively with the supervisors. Um, I like to put staffing for continuous performance provisions so they don't have that light crew uh, syndrome because they got a better job elsewhere paying more money. Um, there's a, um, sometimes I will put a dress code requirement so when people around see them, they don't look like they're just casing the place, that they're there with the company. Um, the hours of operation, that's up to the association. Uh, Saturdays, Sundays, is that okay? You want to put that how early and how late performance is permitted. Um, I like to make sure uh, that, that there is no signage, particularly if your documents say no signs. Now, obviously, permit boards are required by law, so that's not what I call a sign, but where they have a big placard out front, um, the construction company's name, or if there's a bank financing, if you're taking a loan, then the name of the bank. Uh, I don't think you want to permit that. But if you don't care, then don't address it. But I like to prohibit it because most associations don't want those big billboard signs in their community, which is advertising for the contractor or somebody else. Um, if you're going to have a contract that will span any portion of the hurricane season, particularly the height of it, I like to have a hurricane and tropical storm prep section in the contract where it details their demobilization. That's mean taking everything down. If scaffolding, you gotta remove it. Uh, secure the site, tie things down, take things away, there'll be missiles in a storm. And then when the storm danger passes, then there's something called remobilization. I have to bring everything back to the site. And who's gonna pay for all that? That should be detailed in the contract. I like to say the contractor pays, they generally disagree. And then you come up with a per person hourly charge that's gonna uh, apply now. And I try to keep their ability to add costs down because if that takes scaffolding down, they may have to return it and pay a penalty for early return of the materials. So you try to give, to create less wiggle room you have to pay more money during this process. They'll probably make you pay something because they have to do work they didn't plan on 
and, and take materials off-site or secure them. But you want to have it who pays and how much. Um, contract administration, that's a design professional. I mentioned earlier in the larger jobs, um, they're going to have, uh, they are worth their weight in gold. And you do want, unless you have a, someone from a management company that has a heavy construction background, and there are some, some have that um, particular acumen. And if that's the case, uh, that person could be the oversight individual versus a design professional. Um, will the CAM be willing? And most CAM contracts provide that in that case, there is a fees to be paid and sometimes it's a percentage of the job in doing the oversight. So you, uh, when you negotiate your management contracts, you wanna, this, is, this came about really in, in response to 0405, where management companies went out of business because they spent all their time trying to administer a, a job and they're getting no more than the door fee, no extra money for this. So now they've built in, and rightfully so, I would too if I were, a management company and council um, to have um, uh, a fee for that service. So you want to make sure your contract says that fee would apply if requested by the association, not automatically. And then you would decide if that fee is worth it versus what you might pay to an engineer or an architect and make a decision who should be your design professional. I mean, sometimes I know I had one job where um, the man management company's um, CAM uh, was kind of the liaison and the residents thought it was incestuous because there were some related people in the mix between the two companies. So is it a good idea to have your CAM perform the oversight if the CAM is willing? That's something to consider along with the other design professionals. Subcontracts, the standard AIA contract allows subcontracting of work. But maybe you have negotiated with this company because they tell you it's gonna be all their people. The best job you can get is one where it's just their people. Because when you sub out the work, it's another entity who may not be as sharp or uh, adept at doing the work. So if there's gonna be no subcontracting at all, say so. If it's gonna be not at all except for this one detail, then you express that one detail. If there's gonna be subcontracting allowed freely, which is fine, that's usually the way it is, then you wanna make sure that there is certain provisions, how you coordinate activities among the different uh, contractors. Um, there are mutual use of a staging area, the same staging area your contractor uses. And I like to, when I get to the insurance of what I ask for the contractor, that the subcontractors likewise provide the same insurance to the association. So now I'm gonna start on insurance and then turn the floor over shortly to Trevor to come into play. But actually let's talk now what you would like to see in the certificate of insurance, which is what you need to get. Um, and I like to make that part of my contract. So it's real clear, it's, it's there and what the limits are. You wanna speak a little bit on that? Yeah, so just like you have a lot of areas within your contract that are negotiable, insurance is a big part of that as well. And if you're just taking the contract from the contractor, say a roofer, uh, they're, not, they're gonna give themselves plenty of leeway 
and not have any requirements in it, right? It's in the favor of that contractor, let's say a roofer. So looking closely at this section, you're gonna work with your attorney. You should also be working with your agent, your advisor. You don't, you don't pay them an hourly rate, right? Send that to them, say, what should we be looking for in here? And the big things to be looking for are general liability. Do we have general liability coverage? Okay, that is the absolute basic to even drive onto the lot of an association. Should be one million, two million in coverage. You should be listed as additionally insured on that general liability policy. They should have workers comp. Okay, so we wanna see proof of workers comp coverage. Get lots of questions on, well, we, we have a lawn contractor, it's just him and he's exempt with the state and he sends us the exemption every year. I said, well, that's a job that has to be done every single week in the summer. What happens if he's sick or he's out of town? Is it just that one guy coming on site or pool? That's one that's really common, pool contractor. If he has an exemption, that can be passable. But if it's something that has to be done regularly, that exemption is not gonna be any good for anyone else, only the owners of the corporation. So you gotta be really careful with these exemptions. And when we're comparing side by side with two contractors, you know, there's gonna be a long list of things that aren't apples to apples. That's one of the biggest things that may not be the same that you need to establish premium for. You need to say, I will pay more for somebody who has protection for themselves, which ultimately protects the association. And uh, workers' comp is primary. So even if they're heard on your, your association site and, <clears throat> and their workers' comp comes first, they may eventually subrogate against the association's general liability, which is fine if you're at fault, which does happen, uh, but you can also get by that with waivers of subrogation clauses. Now these aren't free for contractors, but it's a way for the association to transfer risk back onto the contractor. Are you gonna be able to get this every time? No, but you have the negotiating power, right? These contractors wanna do work for you. You're going to pay them hefty amounts of money. This is another area that you can have improvement on. So we want general liability, we want workers comp, we want commercial auto. We'd like to see hired and non-owned auto exposure on there. Take for example, Ryan. Uh, Ryan has a lot of individuals that drive their own vehicles. These are non-owned autos to the corporation and Ryan pays a premium to make sure those individuals are covered above and beyond what their personal auto insurance is, even though they may be driving directly to the association. This is a really important part of coverage that you send to me and I'll you know, tell you if it's there or not. You don't need to be trying to survey these yourself. So commercial auto, hired and non-owned, um, and those are gonna be the basic ones. General liability, uh, workers comp, commercial, uh, if it's an engineer, you may want to see errors and omissions type coverages. You're definitely going to want to see possibly an umbrella. Um, you're going to want clauses like additional insured. You may want primary non-contributory and waivers of subrogation. These are all areas that you have control over uh, as the association and can negotiate on. And that should be within the contract, not just a certificate, because you want to be able to go back to the contract and say, this is what it says and this is how we're gonna pay you when you satisfy the contract insurance requirements. So I'm not, I'm not an, um, an attorney, but I can lead you in that direction. I'll send out a supplemental that is an addendum that you can use with your attorney that shows these basic items that you can request just as an add-on if it's not a huge contract for you just to add on to a uh, contractor's already built contract. Thank you.
Or if you could speak to, um, you know, companies that use subcontractors and, you know, all the, all the subs have is an exemption, all they have is, you know, uh, very subpar GL if they have workers' comp, but yet, the, you know, all the association is seeing this facade of right. the contractor. Of the master, yeah. So, um, and then, you know, Jay, you could probably um, speak to, um, uh, you know, you have to get releases of lien from the sub-subs as well and the material suppliers, right. not just the primary contractor. Right. So let's talk about the flow of liability first and a contractor that may have subs. You addressed a very good point that it's very, it should be within the contract stating how that's going to work as far as what they're going to show you, uh, that they should have their own certificates of insurance, which are almost always going to be less than whoever your prime or your uh, your upstream general contractor is going to be, um, and you're going to see a lot more exemptions there. You're going to see a lot lower coverages, and should be a question and built into the contract I itself. Agree. Totally. The scariest things you're going to see with one and two man operations are um, exemptions and them being in leasing companies or professional employer organizations (PEOs). The way those work, and some people have to be in them depending on their class of business. It's a lot of roofers that are in that. It's a lot of high up. There's a lot of mold remediation that you have to be in this uh, this type of coverage organization. But the problem with that is those employees are specifically listed. It's not broad and general the way standard workers comp statute 440 operates. So you can have some scary things go on there. It's just another item that's not going to be apples to apples. You have a lawn contractor that's with a standard company, uh, follow statute 440, that's gonna be broader and better coverage than uh, organization Z that is with a leasing company and they get somebody to come on site that day because they needed an employee. Well, that employee's not covered yet until they get a paycheck or until they're specifically listed on the policy. We've had this happen, $400,000 claim. Well, who's the first person to likely get hurt? Somebody who's the first day on the job or somebody who's you know, been working there a long time. Well, it's guys' first day on the job, and you don't have coverage when you're in a PEO the first day you're on the job unless you've been specifically listed, which is not how a standard work comp policy works. So the subs are very important. Asking those questions and have it being built into your contract. Great. Receiving certificates from the subs, very important. Since I'm trying to keep this as close to an hour as possible, I'm going to kind of be just hitting some of the parts of the outline very briefly and more detailed others. But on page four, there's reference to whether you may want a payment and performance bond. Now, as long as you're getting lien waivers along the way, which you need to, the payment part of the bond is not as important. The performance part of the bond, they do issue together. Is that correct? They always come together? Or can you have one without the other? I would say 99% of the time. Yeah, I've always seen them running together. And that is, if for some reason, let's say, the contractor decides, I don't want to continue this job, I want to leave because a better job down the block. And now you're looking at having to hire someone else to complete the work, and any contractor coming in to a job that's partly performed is not your ideal contract because you're stepping into someone else's work and who knows what problems and well, that work being warranted by the new company. So by the, having a performance bond, the bonding company will guarantee that you will have the job finished for the same original price. 
no premium because when someone sees you on the ropes, which you would be when someone walked off the site, they might, even if they're good-hearted, might take advantage. And you're gonna pay more, no, nothing more than the liability that exists stepping into someone else's work. So do, you're gonna pay- common? Does anybody get bonds or have, no? no Most bond. don't. Have you? We've had a couple of times where we did get performance bonds, but it was usually because, payment or performance bonds, but it was usually because we had a contractor that the association wanted to hire that did not have an experiential and historical record established mm. for a long enough period of time to feel that they were vetable. Okay. For instance, if they were a, a contractor that had moved here in the last two years and they'd only done about three contracts in the county uh, that were anywhere close to the magnitude we're looking at, we would ask them for a performance yeah. bond because we're not sure if they're going to be in business in six months when yeah. they're doing the work. And it's a good tool. I just want to mention that it is going to add at least 2 to 3% to a contract, or at least right. the, either the contractor is going to pay it or they're going to ask you to pay it by adding it on to the contract cost. Now, a termination, if there's different kinds of terminations, one is you terminate um, because it's convenient. Maybe you have a backlash in the community about this vendor, so you want to tell the vendor, uh, you know, you leave now and we're temporarily suspending this contract or terminating the contract. You want to address that situation and what will the contractor get from you in lost profit and or co early termination costs that I build into the contract. So, and there could be other times where there's termination for good cause. And I like to make sure the termination for good cause section doesn't have words that are hard, like for instance, the AIA says, you can terminate the association level for repeated failures to, do, to follow the contract. What does repeated mean? Two times, five times, 105 times, um, little ones, big ones, that's no good language for you in court. So I like to get the word persistently out. And that way I don't have to prove persistent failure. I can prove any failure. And some contractors will balk at that, but a lot of them will say, okay, fine, because they really want the job. Um, indemnification. Indemnification means if a third party sues the association because of the contractor's work, you want the contractor to come in and pay out uh, that loss. Who's gonna be your typical third party? A unit owner whose interior is damaged, maybe in a, a procedure where the, um, uh, the window being replaced wasn't properly boarded. And so you, uh, they call it a, bar a dust barrier in the, in the trade and it wasn't constructed properly. So a lot of wind and rain got in and trashed the unit you want to have the indemnification clause in place. Um, there is one in the AIA contract, but I'm not overly liking it, so I usually change it. Yes, Seth? Jay, I was wondering, what do you think about most contracts, I see indemnification clauses, but I don't see anything referencing consideration given to the contractor for the indemnification clause, and I, I think there's a statute on that, yes, and, but, and there's case law saying we've got to have consideration given to the contractor 
in order, and that should be stated in the contract in order to hold the contract to that. Well, actually, it's 725.06, so write down that site. That's the statute that Seth is mentioning. I read that statute to mean if you're trying to get indemnification when you're at fault yourself, as opposed to they're at fault, then in order to say, I caused the problem, but you're still going to indemnify, that has to have stated consideration in the contract. I usually have the, the stated uh, um, consideration to be the contract sum. And that usually works, and, and the contractor is going to expect something like that. And I've never had a contractor object to the association being negligent, but still getting indemnification on top of it. But that's what I like to add into the contract. We did talk about the two warranties before, so I'm not going to repeat. Uh, damages, <clears throat> and this is where contractors often object. I like to have a tight damage provision where if there is um, something that's not pre-existing, that may have been even caused during construction or was actually interior damage is really a lot of where it comes into play, then the contractor is liable. Uh, they're going to object to being, having to pay for anything and everything. Because sometimes, like when you're doing um, um, balcony restoration and there's jackhammering going on, there's vibration in the building. Or a seawall construction where they're driving pilings in, that, that does a number on probably a quarter mile on either side. Because I, I live next to a seawall construction and the building, oh, my building shook. Because um, there, uh, and so you want to make sure you have a, a damage clause. Uh, a, the good idea is to walk around with a contractor, take pictures, so you can prove what is and is not pre-existing. Um, and in that way, if there is pre-existing damage, that's one thing, but if it's not, you make a claim against the, the contractor, contractor pays. Now, um, warranty, by the way, from the contractor, you got to have a time frame for the warranty. Um, one year is the minimum. I've seen five and ten. The longer the warranty you can get from the contractor, the better. Um, and you want the contractor to warrant materials as well as labor. That's where I often get opposition. They're saying, well, wait a minute, why should I warrant the manufacturer's roof material? And the answer back is, but it's your supplier you have chosen that you work with and you have a relationship with, so you should stand behind uh, material failures as well, because the problem is, and this is what happens, you're going to have a borderline material and labor performance deficiency, and the companies go like this. It's your fault, it's your fault, and you sit there having to maybe litigate against both to sort out who really has responsibility. So if you can get the contractor to warrant materials, that's ideal. Put it in. Most contractors are not going to balk. Some may or may not. Um, correction of work. Generally, I like to be real specific that the correction time frame is the warranty period. And I like to say that as long as a notice is given to the contractor within that period, even though the time for performance may fall outside the warranty period, uh, you, are t you have timely provided notice. Because you have to give notice first for them to correct the work. And if they don't, the contract says the association will go ahead and do it and back charge the owner for, for reimbursement. 
We talked about termination and suspension. Yes, question? Okay, uh, dispute resolution. Contractors love arbitration. Lawyers don't like it. And it's not just because of us being lawyers, because when you have an arbitrator, and arbitration is not always cheaper, and if you don't like the result in arbitration, there's no avenue to appeal. I had an, um, a very large construction defects case that had to be arbitrated because that's the contract I inherited. So it was such a large number, there had to be three. It's over a million dollars. And who pays for the arbitrators? The parties. You don't pay for judges if you have to go to court. Your taxes pay for the judges. But here you have to front and continually pay these arbitrator costs. That's part of your cost that you normally would not have in litigation. And I had an, uh, that large case where one of my panelists was a condo association attorney who specialized in construction defects. I thought I had a winning panelist there. We didn't win that part of the case. And that guy turned on us. So, because, and, and, and it took three months to negotiate who will be the arbitrators, because you don't just have any arbitrator under the sun, you have to negotiate between the parties who it will be, and if you can't agree, you have to go to court and have the court determine what the arbitrator will be. And so, if you, I would check the litigation box in the LEA contract. This is one of the chips that I like to give in on if I have to, if the contractor says absolutely arbitration or no contract, I would recommend the association say, fine, we'll give you that, but hey, now you gotta give us over here. So again, these are some of the chips that you put into a contract that you'll willingly give up to get something more important. Um, I like to make sure that if there's arbitration, the winning party gets attorney's fees, not the arbitrator may award. I don't like the may, I like the shall. That's what we're all used to in the association world. If you go to court, winning party gets attorney's fees from the losing party. It's not a may, it's a shall. So I like to make sure it's mandatory. Uh, let's talk about chapter 558. Chapter 558 applies to all construction contracts. And basically, it's kind of nicknamed the pre-litigation procedures statute. That before you can go to court or arbitration, you have to go through a process of notice, describing your defects to a T, you have to be real specific, giving the parties an opportunity within the statutory timeframes to either offer to settle by paying money, doing performance, or both, or just ignore you because they don't want to pay anything. Um, I like to opt out of Chapter 558. I put it in bold letters in my contract, so it does not apply. Uh, that's probably one of the areas where most contractors uh, disagree. They like it because, first of all, it delays them having to deal with it, deal with this for as much as 120 days, and they like it, it's a conversation inducement as opposed to go right to court or arbitration. So I would give in, but I try to put it in because some contractors either don't know what that is and say, all right, I don't know what it is, so I'm fine. But those who object, there's a negotiation uh, you can do. Um, any questions 
that you have. Uh, we have, uh, we're actually at exactly one hour. Yes? I, th I mean, I think there's a permitting still required, but I guess if it's an emergency, sometimes they may look away, especially right after the storm, what you're doing like de debris removal. I mean, does anyone have experience on exactly how the permitting does and doesn't work in that instance? Roger? You apply for the permit, but you don't have to wait for it. Okay. Okay, they just basically put in the application for a permit, and then, then proceed with the work. They don't have to wait for any permit approval or anything like that. But the permit must be filed so that there's something on record with the city or the state or the county. Now, there has to be closed out of that permit at the very end, though, correct? And when it's finished, they, they will close it out. Right. Seth, you had something? One problem I've heard about that, and maybe Trevor can speak to this, is on roofs, for instance, when in a state of emergency, when they have waived or done some partial waiver of the permitting requirements, Several years down the road, suddenly the owner of the property is seeking uh, maybe a reduced rate of insurance for their superior roof. And the insurer suddenly says, well, there was never a permit. Well, yeah. We have no idea what, how this roof was done. And of course, I suppose the association could go and hire somebody and look into that. But I've heard that's kind of one of the pitfalls yeah. to going along with that permit waiver. Yeah, you got to be careful. I, I think we see this a lot more in individual homes than on a condo itself, but there's a lot of, especially on the personal line side, oh, the roof was replaced in 05, but no one can show any proof of that, and there's no permit on file because in 05 and 06, roofs were just getting replaced willy-nilly, and there, was, there wasn't time to do it, or they were allowed to get away with not having a permit. Um, so yeah, definitely insisting on it creates record, and then getting a mitigation report afterwards is also a good part of that process for roofs. Besides, if you apply for the permit but can, can, can proceed with the work, you're going to have to get that permit closed out. That's when the city or county will come in, do an inspection. So there should be some track record, at least by the end. But if there's and no... it's not just roofs, actually. To be honest with you, HVAC, any substantial improvement is going to come back to you on your property insurance. So permitting and going through that process is still going to be very important. Just on just just to say on the insurance side. So Jay, so in light of what this conversation is about the difficulty down the line, would it be advisable under the current circumstances that we're experiencing right now with the suspended permit situation to add something in the contract? Maybe attorneys could recommend something that says final payment will be contingent upon. Uh, the issuance of a permit and termination of the notice of commencement or something like that so that the association does have I put that in my contracts, by the way. So I, I make sure that um, it's called pro it's closing out of the permit is one of the conditions to final payment. And we, I didn't mention earlier, but in the progress payments, I didn't really cover that. How are they to get paid? Uh, they'd like to get the most money possible up front. Um, particularly where there's materials being ordered, 
and they have to put down payments on materials. You're going to find a higher down payment than you otherwise want to pay. You negotiate that, but you also want to have retainage. Retainage means you take X percent off of every draw request and it goes into what's called retainage. And so by the end of the project, you have a sum of money you've held back. It's money held back. 10% is your standard uh, percentage. Sometimes contractors in a much larger job wants to see that retainage go to maybe to 5% as the job progresses, so you're not continually hold. And that's hold back money. That's half their profit. And it's sitting in the association's account pretty much, and the contractor is not getting it. I like to um, try to stick with the 10% throughout, but there may be some negotiation to have the retainage reduce as you hit least maybe past halfway through the job. So that's something you may see, but you always want to start with a 10% retainage, let them come back with, they're not going to say no, but they may want a reduction in the retained amount uh, as the job progresses. Um, but you want to also get to pay the lease down. When you think about it, let's assume they want 50% down and it's a large contract. You pay that money and for that moment in time, you've got nothing, but you're out 50%. They take your money and they go elsewhere. Now you're in litigation over that issue that they've received money and didn't have an expense. So the less you can pay in the perfect world, if there's not heavy materials, um, you'll pay the permit costs up front, um, any bonds if you have it. Uh, sometimes they'll have what's called a mobilization expense. There's actually a line item in the contract for them to bring everything to the site and if the scaffolding to put it up and assemble it in place. Um, so uh, that's often paid up front. If, that, if you can get away with paying nothing additional than that, uh, you've done well. Any other questions? Now, regarding the um, paperwork that needs to be in the release of liens, the issue with the materials, you're right, most contractors want 50% up because of material costs. How do we get to know that those materials were actually paid for by the contractor? Well, the contract obligates all suppliers and subs and, uh, to be paid. And be required. It doesn't mean that, and the reason I'm saying, I'm asking this question is we just had this, this situation occur where the uh, rental company came after us and threatened us with a lien against our property because the contractor didn't pay for Right. Okay, well, well here, here's where you have to get lien waivers along the way. It's really only those that serve notice to owner. A notice to owner is telling you I am doing something for this project. I'm supplying materials, I'm supplying labor, um, um, I'm doing something, I'm a subcontract, um, I'm the leasing company for the equipment, and I'm on this job, and you're not in contract with me, you're in contract with your contractor, and if, my, my, if your contractor doesn't pay, I'm going to go after you and you'll be paying twice. So that's what the notice is telling you. It's not a lien, it's a warning, I'm on this job and you may not know it. In fact, most of the time you're not going to know who that person is. So you get lien waivers 
from those people as you make your payments. Um, if they're partial lien waivers. It's for work performed to the date that that waiver was signed. So in that case, that'll prevent that from happening. Um, but is it the contractor that's getting that? And it's the yes, contract? yes, yes. Because you put the job on the... Co you didn't get a notice. A notice to owner is telling you you should know. That's the warning. In fact, it even says at the top warning, because they're trying to make sure you get your attention. That um, if you, if you, I don't get paid by your contractor, which means you may pay your contractor, you may end up paying twice. And that's the lien waivers. They can't anything that was ordered or or put into place from that date backward cannot be liened. That's your, when it's not a party to your contract, your only risk of having to pay someone else is if your contractor doesn't pay those people. Uh, with lien waivers, they have no claim against the property, and that's all you're concerned about. If there's a dispute now between the two parties, you're not part of that dispute. But when the liens get filed, you become right in the middle of that dispute. And of course, if that happens, the contract will provide that you could, um, if that's the case, you could have the ability to pay the sub or supplier directly and have an offset against what you owe to the contractor. So I put that into the contract. Yes. Hold on one second. Sorry, it's after one. I just want to make sure everybody is signed in. Right. We have that sheet. Okay, so if you have to leave, I understand. But as long as we have that sheet signed in. All right. All right. Any CAMs not having signed that blue sheet, um, please get, get the sheet so I can uh, get you your certificates. Okay, um, do you want to stay a few more minutes? It's 111. Uh, to elaborate on that, um, uh, I, I understand sometimes you could have paid the contractor in full, then all of a sudden you get this NTO because they got, what, 45 days? Yes. So, you know, it, it, the job may have took 14 days, you know, 30 days, but then they get this NTO. Meanwhile, they've paid out. Now they haven't paid their supplier and your suppliers, you know, serving as NTO and coming after you for non-payment. Um, that's just why um, if you know there's a piece of equipment on your site, if you know there's a material man providing materials in any substantial quantity, um, and, you know, and your contractor, you need to get every time you're paying them, I need a waiver from you, I need a waiver from your material man, and I need a waiver from your equipment supplier. And that's very rarely asked, but the astute associations ask us for those things. And, you know, it's not a big deal. We make a phone call or send out an email, they send you what they need. And all it is is just being armed with the knowledge to ask for it. Right. It's not an inconvenience to your contract. I mean, they, you know, the contractor may whine because, oh, now I got to pay this. And he was going to, you know, use that for his rent or something, you know, but, but they need to pay that along the way. And, and, you know, like you said, keep current with the bill. Now, if it's a, if it's a final payment, you're not going to make that until you have final releases right. of late. And there's a chicken and the egg issue because the supplier may say, I'm not signing until I've been paid. But I said, well, that's your problem. I mean, that, that's, and sometimes we'll, there's, we'll have a delayed where if we can't do it in tandem with a payment, we rectify it the next payment going back. So there's like a, a couple of week delay maybe during the progress of the job with the final coming, of course, at the end. So sometimes I've only had that uh, asked a couple of times. 
a, a very smart contractor thinking of that because of the reality of getting a waiver from someone who's about to be paid but not yet. Um, but most contractors are not really forward thinking on that and will agree for lien waivers as a condition to each progress payment. No lien waiver, no progress payment. I, I like your idea that maybe you haven't gotten a notice to owner, but you know someone's on your job site, you know that for a fact, you find out who it is, make sure you identify them when you're looking for the partials. Okay. A great idea. The contractor really should be obligated in the contract to, to um, uh, make known all the subcontractors, yes. material men, et cetera. You know, that's part of this contract. So he withholds right. that information. And there is a portion in the construction lien law um, that will come into play and will require that the uh, contractor um, make sure that the, um, these lien waivers are in place. If you have any questions, come talk to Jay. I just want to close it down because I know a lot of people have to go and they don't want to be rude. So uh, thank you, Jay. Thank you. As always, thank awesome. You. Thanks.